Awesome. Good morning, Olive Branch. How you guys doing? It's good to see you guys. It's good to hear from you. You know, we've got some um, house cleaning stuff I wanted to bring before your, before your attention this morning, before we got marching off into the Bible and seeing what God has for us. And that is, um, how many guys know Bennett Reed and Winsome Reed? Put your hand up real quick. Bennett and Winsome have been a, are a longtime members of the church here. And Bennett has been involved in our, on our elder team for the last, oh, I think it's been four or five, four or five years now. And uh, he's got a, a big family, and so he's got a lot of grandkids that he's been helping uh, love on and uh, and to, to support his his children and so as winsome and so you know they're they're kind of got a he's got one of those crazy jobs too works early in the morning and so just with all the stresses and stuff he's kind of decided from best thing for him and his family is for him to take a step back from uh, from the elder table and so we just want to thank him so if you see Bennett and you see winsome would you thank them for their service as a part of the elder team here at the church part of your leadership team they've been huge to us brings a lot of insight and wisdom He's going to be dearly missed, but we're going to honor his, his request. And so we're letting you guys know that he has kind of stepped back from that table. So when you see him, thank him. Let's just praise God for him this morning right now as it is. So. Well, as we move forward, we are in this series called Upgrade, and what we're looking at is a conversation of how the gospel ought to be impacting our lives. We should give ourselves fully to the gospel and fully over to God so that when he gives us this good news, it changes us. We saw in the first week, it begins to change us by changing our mindset, the way that we think, the way that we approach life, the way that we deal with things. Then the second week, we began to examine the fact that it starts to shape the way that we view ourselves, seeing that God has given us gifts, he's given us things to do. That we should engage and get motivated in those things. And last week, we saw the fact that the, this gospel actually doesn't just let us experience love. It puts love at the core of who we are. And it becomes everything that we do. And that our love ought to be without a hypocrisy. It ought to be genuine. It ought to be right. And um, so we're going to kind of continue on that theme this week as we continue in the book of Romans here in Romans chapter 12. But what we're looking at... It's really a question of networks. If, you've, if you were working at this church, you'd realize our network is kind of weird. It, 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 I don't get it. You set it up, it works fine, and it starts rolling along, and eventually it literally just cuts out. And we don't know if it just has a mind of its own. How many have networks at your work that do similar things? You just randomly come in, it's gone, it shuts out. Yes, thank you, Brent. Brent, who works here, he's saying, yes, that's ours. And... Uh, <laughs> And exactly. It's just, it's kind of these odd things with networks. They don't communicate all the time with each other. They don't always seem to match up in their language. They don't seem to be even wanting to communicate. They just crash for the heck of it. But you know, that's kind of more of an image of how we are. You and me, we have human networks. You, you connect with people at your workplace where you have to communicate with them. You and I connect with each other, and we connect with uh, our, our, my, you know, our spouses, our children, our parents. These are all human networks. And there are times where, honestly, communication is awful. You're listening, and they're listening to you, and you're not understanding them, and they're not understanding you. Have you ever had one of those relationships where you just constantly, you're trying hard to communicate clearly, but it's not working? It, it's really annoying, isn't it? Especially when it's like at a drive-thru, right? Because you're like, you want, that, you want that food right and that order right and it's never right. But life feels like that. Like you're talking through some kind of muffled conversation. And then that's, and you realize they're not getting me. You may have been years at work with this person conversing and talking and you know they don't understand you and you don't understand them. And this miscommunication stuff and this, problem, this kind of stuff can create literally tension and anger and problems amongst our networks. And our networks begin to fail and crash. 
And so in this upgrade that God has given us in the gospel, he gives us this love and he calls us to a greater conception, a greater ability to have these kind of proper networks. And so I want to challenge you guys to open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 12 to join with me through these, these verses 14 through 16. And what we're going to be doing is we're really going to be looking at how God wants to reshape our networks with the gospel. How he wants to change the way that we deal with each other in the church and outside of the church. Now where he begins, and I'm not going to read all the text right now because there's a lot there and we want to kind of roll through it effectively. And uh, we're going to hit each verse. He starts with this. He starts with the most extreme situation. He starts with saying, hey, guys, want to have a really good, a good relationships. You need to really understand that we need to have these good relationships with other people. And it starts by how you deal with your enemies, how you deal with those who are against you. And Paul basically begins with this very similar, this simple thought, be good toward those, towards your enemies. Bless your persecutors. Notice how he puts it right here in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, right there, right at the beginning, we're like, Greg, you're not like giving us any leeway. It's just right in. If you want good relationships, you start with your enemies. Paul doesn't let up. He says, you need to bless those people who are, giving, who are causing you harm. You need to be willing to, to lay upon them not anger and frustration and cursing, but you should be laying upon them a blessing. And this is kind of, kind of odd because our culture doesn't have a lot of persecution. I mean, we're not living in like a third world dictatorship where there's a non-Christian who's ruling us and telling us, if you're a Christian, I'm locking you away in some kind of prison system where you're going to build Christmas lights for the rest of your life for Americans. You know, not that kind of a situation like our brothers in China have. But you know, we go through different kinds of things. We have some laws that are starting to take away our freedoms, and there's constantly this kind of stirring towards that. We know that there may be persecution coming, but there is also persecution in our stances with the culture. We don't always line up. Some of our beliefs and some of what we hold because we trust God and his word stands radically opposed to where the world is going. And when that happens, you may get the insults on your Facebook page. You may find yourself in the debate at your work, at the, cool, you know, the water cooler at your workroom, or at a family gathering where somebody disagrees with you and is very, very serious about that disagreement to the point that they may call you a hater, may start calling you a bigot, start throwing names at you, and they've stopped arguing the conversation. They just start insulting you. Some of you may have even gone so far as to wound up avoiding blows or heated angers or I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that stuff, but the bottom line is simply this, that we aren't called to do these things. We're called to live in this kind of unity, this good relationship with each other. And it starts with this relationship of blessing the, those who are challenging us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus put it this way, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is heavy when we understand that love is to be self-sacrificial towards another person, to be willing to give up of your own on behalf of their betterment. And Jesus is saying, you need to love your enemies in that manner. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty radical language that Paul and Jesus are both using, especially when you realize blessing is to, to pray that they would have security, success, um, prosperity, longevity for life. All of these kind of things is, is, is a prayer of blessing. And you're going, God, they're hurting me. Give them good stuff. That's not common. And I think the silence in here shows it's not common. Most of us are used to the opposite end. You punch me, I'm going to punch you back. You insult me, I'm going to insult you back. This is on, you know. We're kind of fighters as Americans in some ways. 
And the problem here is that as Christians, the upgrade comes in so that we can have these good relations with each other. We can have these conversations and these, these lives built upon a harmony in a sense. And so we realize that cursing is actually kind of our common language. Say, oh, I don't think so. I don't think we're running around cursing. Cursed be you upon the land. You know, it's not that kind of stuff. But when we analyze what cussing is, I think you'll be shocked how often we curse each other. Cussing, um, well, you probably haven't taken the time, like I have because I'm weird, to look up every cuss word in the dictionary and look at where to come from, what's it mean, how to, cu- how to get there. And I did that. I was a youth pastor. You kind of go like, cussing's an important subject, so let's learn about it. And so I sat down with the dictionary and looked up all the cuss words and looked at where they came from and why they're used. And really the bottom line, every cuss word that we use in the American language and in any language actually all derives from one of three locations, from something you flush down the toilet, something you throw in a trash heap, or somebody you would push out of your life and never accept as a whole of society. That is it. Every terminology equates somebody to garbage, feces, or shame. All in an attempt to bring people down, to make them low, to bring, to esteem them lowly and view them as worthless, if not worthless. And what's interesting about it, that's exactly the use of a curse in the ancient world. You would use a curse to bring them low, to bring them to be worthless in your sight. And when we run around using our cuss words towards each other and we start acting like they're no big deals, they are very big deals and they have very powerful functions as curses that cause I believe, harm towards each other because we are devaluing each other. We are literally calling each other to the low common denominator. And so really we could see here that he says, look, bless, do not curse. It's saying do not cut people down. Don't bag on them. Don't tear them down. Don't cuss at them. Don't curse them. So this is not easy. You got to be like some kind of incredible human being, Greg, to do this. Well, maybe that's true, but let me reference an incredible human being. How many guys have ever seen Unbroken? You've seen the movie so far, read the book. Just throw your hand up. If you read the book, that's okay too, because it's better. All right. The rest of you need to go see the movie. If you haven't seen Unbroken, you need to go see an incredible story about a Christian man. But Louis Zambernini is an interesting man. He was, he, was, he was slated to be the man who was going to break the four-minute mile. He was an incredible runner. He went to the Berlin Olympics and, was, and impressed all kinds of people. And eventually was supposed to run at the Japanese Olympics, but that got all broken up by World War II. In the middle of his, um, in, in his military career, all kinds of crazy, horrible things happened to him. And he eventually winds up, you see the movie, I'm not stealing it, from you, winds up in a Japanese POW camp where they're extremely brutal. And as he gets out, the movie ends with this kind of black and white lettering across. It's like, and Louis returned to Japan to forgive everybody who had done anything to him. That's pretty much like all it really gives you. And you're going, this guy's incredible. He's really unbroken, going through all the torture and stuff he went through. And he comes out, and he's like hugging his family. He's all fine. He's like, I'm an amazing human being. No wonder he can forgive the Japanese people. He's like nobody we've ever seen before, except for the fact that it's a lie. He came home completely broken. He became an alcoholic, struggled with years and years of his life, wondering why he was even living, hated himself, hated what he went through, complete PTSD, everything you could imagine from a warrior coming home. He had it going on. His wife, tired, worried, freaked out, winds up going to this little explosion of an event called the Billy Graham Crusade, the first one in L.A. Walks in, she gives her life to Jesus Christ. 
eventually starts begging Louis to go. Louis winds up in, the, in this Billy Graham crusade and gives his life to Jesus. Loses the alcoholism, God frees him from this, gives him a sudden transformation of his life in which suddenly the very Jesus who hung upon a cross and being killed by his enemies shouted from that cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. The very Jesus who was able to forgive his persecutors, his enemies, entered into Louis's life so that Louis, though an amazing guy, still needed Jesus to empower him so he could go to his persecutors and bless them. He was, by the time he was dead, he was considered a national hero in Japan. A, a, a bringer of the gospel to people throughout all of Japan. This man didn't do that because he was some kind of great person. He did it because the living Lord Jesus Christ dwelled in his heart. And if you call yourself a Christian here today, the same God dwells in you. And so to say, we got to forgive our, 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 we can't curse these people, these persecutors. Guys, the God who dwells in you empowers you to forgive them. He walks in you to live in a manner that is completely upgraded and radically different. Now I hate to say it, but if you're not a Christian in this room, you probably not experienced that very often from Christians. You probably have pushed Christianity away because you see some really negative behaviors in Christians that you know. But I want you to listen carefully to these texts because what you're going to hear is the call of the Christian life who lives after the gospel. And I hope that'll give you a challenge because this call is also for every human being. It's for you too. And so I want you to focus in on this because as we get get into this, it's going to be interesting because right at the start, he says, you know, bless your persecutors, bless those people. But next he goes on to say, now empathize with people. If you're going to be in good relations with others, you and I need to empathize. Verse 15, read it with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How many people do we know that when they get in a bad place in life, things are falling apart, they're in pain, whatever, it's time for the pity party. Anybody, anybody kind of like, yeah, that's me. I'm kind of the pity party person. No, I like to throw a pity party. In the meantime, what's worse is when somebody in a pity party goes to a real party because something great is going on and everybody's really excited about it. They come in, they rain on the parade. You know, they're kind of like, <laughs> they turn the whole party into a, a cry fest instead of a, the celebration it ought to be. And here's the danger. We're not empathizing with each other. That you may be having a great day and everything's going great and you meet that person who's had a lousy day and you're like, fuck up, buddy. Life's okay. You know, it's kind of like, get out of this and speak positively. You know, the scripture says you enter in with them. That love is willing to sacrifice our good, joyful feelings for a time to enter in and care, to pray, and to weep, and to hurt with somebody else. Or the opposite, you're in this miserable funk and you're just bleh, bleh, bleh. And somebody's had an amazing day. It's calling you to get up, empathize with them and say, gosh, this is awesome. I'm happy for you. Scripture tells us and instructs us that we need to be able to step in and relate to each other emotionally. It's called empathy. This is hugely important for us who are married or us who have children. You got to learn how to empathize. You come home and if you're, in my case, my wife stays home with the kids so when I come home and I haven't empathized that she's had no normal human being to speak to all day long, I'm going to expect a lot of conversation coming my direction. And if she empathizes with me that I've been sitting around with people all day doing stuff, there's a tendency for her to go, okay, I'll give you space. And we meet ourselves in the middle. We've empathized with each other. We felt each other's emotions. We sat back and asked ourselves, how would it feel if I was in their shoes? And then we've learned then to do what Galatians says, bear one another's burdens. 
so that if her day's been awful, I'm willing to enter into the mess to lift her up, not to step back and go, I don't know what your problem is, it's your life, you figure it out. You know, that's not love. And vice versa. We enter in, bear each other's burdens, care for one another, listen to each other. When your children's sitting there going, ah, yeah, falling apart, you got to go, okay, man, this is a big emotion. What's going on here? Enter in and empathize, connect. Now, does that mean you actually got to literally cry with those who cry or cheer? In some ways, yes. There ought to be some physical representation. You're at a birthday party and you're like, I consider this a good party. I'm happy, you know. They're like, what's your problem? I'm happy. You're good. Good birthday. Yes. You know, and that's okay. Maybe some of us are just that way. To be honest, I'm a little bit that way. We were at a, um, a kind of a family situation out in Oklahoma, gone to visit my wife's grandparents, went with my in-laws, my, my, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, we drove all the way out to Oklahoma. And, the, and he was, um, their grandpa was a 90-year-old something man, had a stroke. I mean, this guy was old and, um, and, and a neat guy. We got to hang out with him, spend a week with him, talking with him, all this cool stuff. And, um, as we were leaving, you know, her grandpa, her grandpa, my wife's grandpa and grandma and brother and sister-in-law were all just bawling because they didn't know if they were going to see him again. They didn't know what was going to happen. They were just hurting. And I'm sitting here going, my emotions are like evaporated. I'm just like, oh, everyone's crying. This is quite interesting. Maybe I should write notes about how people are crying right now. This is quite fascinating. Yeah, good. Like I'm some kind of David Attenborough on, on, on Living Planet or something, watching people do stuff. And I was like, no, I need to enter into this. And I had to fight to get my mindset in. While I didn't cry, I could understand what they were going through and empathize as best as I could. So I wasn't sitting back going, that's ridiculous. You people are all crying. You're going to see him again. Get over it. No, that's not empathy. And that doesn't lead to good relationships with people. So we want to simply ask ourselves, how would I feel in their situation? Empathize with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Celebrate with your, your crew member who gets, the, who gets the, great, uh, the great raise or position. Watch as they begin to say, you know, I love that you love me. And that comes together. So... I could go on on that, but let's move forward into the last part. Kind of a summary statement that Paul says then is that we need to live in harmony with each other. Notice here in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another, he says. So it means live in a harmonious fashion in which we are all doing well together, communicating together. The network is running fine. He says, don't be haughty. Here's how you live in harmony. Number one, don't be arrogant. Who likes to hang out with arrogant people anyway? People, People walking around like, I am all that. And a bag of chips, thank you very much. I am the taco plate. You know, it's like they, this, they just think they're amazing. And you just kind of like, yeah, you may humor people like that, but you don't hang out with them. And what's difficult about haughty people and arrogant people is they're annoying. They're people who, who just walk around. And then what's even worse is that our culture is filled with this. You know how I think that, why I think that? Because we are so easily offended in our culture, are we not? Isn't offense like just like everybody's offended? I'm offended. I'm offended you think that. What? You're writing out your thoughts on on, on Facebook out there. You're like, yeah, I just think that I I support this cause. I'm offended, you hater. Blah, 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 blah. You're like, whoa, what'd I do? I met people who are offended over the different views of how you raise children. Offended. They're not just like, oh, that's a different opinion. Yeah, interesting. No, I'm offended you'd think that way. I've talked about car seat laws and how I think they're ridiculous. Honestly, I know they need safe. I don't think, I think we need to educate people. We don't need to make people put my wife in a car seat. She's a short woman. It's just, you know, 
I don't get these laws, okay? And the bottom line is, I have, I, literally, people will look at me like, I'm offended. And I'm like, time out. Can I just say something to make the record straight? You're not that important. And neither am I. We're just not that important, people, to be offended by everything. To think our position is the ultimate thing that we should be like, oh, I can't believe you would believe differently than me. Is that not arrogant? Haughty. It's interesting, the Proverbs say this, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is a glory. It is his glory to overlook an offense. It's an amazing person who takes insult after insult after insult and just glides on through. It's able to say, oh, thanks, I needed to hear that. I'll learn from that. People are like, "Uh huh? Uh, Some people may think you're weak, whatever, but the scripture is very clear. The guy's haughtiness is not supposed to be in us. We're not supposed to take ourselves so seriously that everything we think and what we do is the end all be all is the business. You know, it's not, that's not how it works. And so what we need to see is that we need to not take ourselves so serious, but see ourselves as equals with human beings, all made in the image of God and all messed up in sin. And we don't have all the answers and we're not all there is. And so it's no wonder he goes on. He says, guys, Look, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In this case, the lowly in the scriptures were the poor, those who were marginalized, those who, had been, um, those who would have been seen as having a handicap or something in the ancient world. They were the lowly, as if they were beneath people. And really what he's saying is, you really should live in a manner where people aren't beneath anybody. If you're in your socioeconomic class, you're up here and they're down here and you're like, well, they don't have a home. I'm not going to invite them to my house. Really? What's going on in there is not um, actually what we think is happening. The reason racism exists, the reason, you know, fear of ethnicities exists, the reason that we draw our lines socioeconomically the way that we do, you're not doing it the way that I would, you're not comfortable in my, is because honestly, we're just arrogant. We're proud. And honestly, that destroys good relationships when we're not capable of hanging out with pretty much anybody. That's not easy. You're going to get uncomfortable. You're going to go through stuff. But the bottom line is, in the church, there should be no racism. In the church, there should be no socioeconomic class stuff going on. We should be one family, united together in Christ, and it doesn't matter. We should be able to hang out with everybody. Because in this room right now is all of that stuff. And if we can worship the, our God together, we should be able to hang out in our homes together. Amen? And that's the call. And maybe if you find some kind of racism in your heart, you find some kind of social class problem in your heart, you need to repent and ask God to forgive you of it and ask him to remove it from you. And that we would be willing to invite anyone into our home that from any class level or structure. Guys, Whoever, who's the lowly to you is really the question you need to ask yourself. And then you need to challenge yourself. Why do you think of yourself better than them? Why? Is it because you think you're good? I don't know. That's my problem. That's what I struggle with. And so we need to really ask ourselves, guys, how do we really live this harmony together? Finally, he says, verse 16, never be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't be a know-it-all. 
Don't walk around thinking, I got all the answers. Because you know what know-it-alls do? You sit in a conversation and somebody says something and they jump on the conversation and start telling everybody how it's supposed to be and why it's right and true and this and that and that. And being a a recovering know-it-all, because every pastor actually is a recovering know-it-all, just so you know. I did it again. But the point is simply that we, there's only one solution to a know-it-all. Shut up, ask a good question, and listen. That's it. What I've had to do in my recovery as a know-it-all is to shut up, realize I don't really know everything that I think I know, that I need to listen to other people. And I find out, because I get in my know-it-all mode when somebody drops a, like a theological thought, and they're like, I think God is boom. I'm just like, no, 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 no. All this stuff comes out, and it gets really ugly. And so I learned to stop monologuing and just go, oh, ask a good question. Where'd you learn that from? You know what I discover? People don't know where they learn things from. (laughs) They hold to things because of experiences that they've had. And suddenly they're telling stories about their life and their hearts and their problems. And some of you have have pushed, maybe you're here today because somebody invited you to church stuff. Yeah, sure, I'll come. But you have some bad, bad experiences with churches. She had bad experiences with Christians and they've tainted the way that you assume or think through what Christians believe or what you believe about Christianity. I'm not faulting you. That's just how we are. But some arrogant know-it-all just hasn't shut up to listen to you yet. And so Christians, we need to not be arrogant know-it-alls because guess what Christians can often be? We run around telling the whole world, we know what it is, and And instead we just pause for a minute, not saying what we know isn't true, but maybe we should just shut up, ask some good questions, and listen, and we'll discover a lot of amazing things about people and where God's working and what he's already doing in lives, and we can live with some good relations with others. This is a challenging scripture, challenging me like crazy, but I want to just kind of hand that over to you guys. Because then he moves on to talk about really what all this leads to. It's that in this upgrade, we become an agent of good and not an agent of revenge or evil. In fact, check this out. He, he, he moves right into the beginning, right in this kind of change. And he, and he says, look, guys, we um, can't let evil be an excuse for you to do evil. Notice what he does. He says, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, my son, one of my sons is in the room right now, so he'll, he'll be able to attest to this. But in my house, there's a lot of arguing that goes on between my kids. And it usually starts with this. Andrew, hit me. Andrew, come here. Andrew, why did you hit him? He took my toy. Why'd you take his toy? I wanted to play with it and he wouldn't share. Anybody heard this conversation before? Yeah. All right, so back and forth this goes. And you know what inevitably I do? I start yelling at them. You stop doing that. You don't repay evil for evil. Why are you yelling at us then? It's different. You know, that's kind of how that works out. <laughs> but this is the constant fight. My kids are repaying evil for evil, back and forth. You did this to me. There's an excuse for me to do that to you. Well, guess what? We're just a bunch of grown-up kids. We do this with our kids. We do this with our spouses. We do this with our parents, don't we? Well, you poke me, I'll poke you back. You yelled at me, I get to yell at you. And we literally use it as an excuse. You'll hear yourself. Well, you said this. Not excuse for you to use it now against them. And Paul just says, let's just cut this out. You don't repay evil because somebody's done evil to you. 
You don't sit around and connivingly deduce how you're going to get back at somebody. You don't emotionally explode because you've been triggered. Basically, this is a lot about self-control. He's calling us to not let this evil be an excuse for us to do evil, but to think about our actions. When somebody's insulting you and yelling at you at the workplace, what you'll often find is that if you respond back, everybody will start taking sides. Everybody's all mad and everybody's on somebody's side. But oftentimes, if you just be quiet and let them yell and yell and yell and you realize, I'm not really being hurt here. And they're just going crazy and all this stuff. The water cooler conversation changes. They're all like, I don't know what his problem was. Man, he's all bent out of shape. I'm sorry you had to go through that. They all start like siding up with you, back and behind you because it's honorable to them. That you didn't blow up. You kept your cool. You stayed normal. And this is an incredibly powerful device when we begin to realize that what God's given us is, is this ability just to go, you can nail me with evil, I'm going to give you good. I'm not going to return this back to you. I'm not going to get caught up in a vengeance cycle, is what it's technically called. And what's weird about this is that it actually works. Uh, the Proverbs put it this way, that a, a calm rebuke ends wrath. A calm response stops the wrath of another person. If you're just calm about it, it causes a great change. And so really the question I would leave you guys with is if a non-Christian is watching your behavior when you're in a conflict, and you'll get in there. I'm not saying you won't, but if a non-Christian is watching your behavior in a conflict, are you acting in a manner that draws them nearer to Christ or further away? Because there's a lot of people in this world who watch Christians in conflict. And how we act on Facebook or towards subjects or towards whatever. And honestly, we've pushed people away like crazy. Because we've been arrogant, we've been angry, we've been... And if you're a person who's been harmed in that manner by another Christian, I just want to say I'm sorry. But again, look at this text. This is what God's called Christians to. And yeah, we don't live up to it. That's because we're sinners. We, We mess up. And that's exactly why Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross. We aren't perfect. We can't do it. It's so important to note that. But guys, we need to be the kind of people who are willing to take this and go pray and ask for some distance so we can get our our minds wrapped around, maybe empathize with them, go through some of these other pieces. But don't let evil be an excuse for you to return evil back. Second, he says then, hey, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live a life without fighting and quarreling. In other words, if it depends upon you. Notice that? Look at that text again. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on who? Say you. Not me, you. No, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> so far as it depends on You. Guys, the responsibility for peaceableness, the responsibility for a life of not fighting and quarreling rests on you, not on somebody else. But they made me so mad. We've been saying that since we're kids. Nobody can make you anything. They didn't reach inside your brain and press the mad button. You've allowed yourself to get angry. You've allowed yourself to be affected. So far as it depends upon you, you control yourself to live at peace with people. The responsibility for peace has been squared exactly where it belongs upon the individual as a person. And so for us, it's our job to remain calm. It's our job to create peace. And as long as it depends upon us, we can step in. Now, are you saying, Greg, that if somebody starts pounding on me, pulling a knife and they're going to stab me, I'm just going, okay, God, here I come. You know, is that what's supposed to happen? No. There is such thing as self-defense. Notice it said, if what? Possible. 
so far as it depends on you. If somebody else doesn't want peace and they're attacking you, you have the right to defend yourself. All right? Now, don't repay evil for evil, obviously. But you have the right to fend them off and defend yourself, to, to, to subdue them, to get them in a place where you're no longer in harm or your family isn't. So I'm not eliminating self-defense, and this passage does not do that. But it doesn't mean that if somebody does something to you, you get to start plotting and scheming and also villainously figure out how you're going to get back at them. <laughs> That's not our lives. That's movies, Vengeance is a big deal, but instead we're, not, we're to let God get the revenge and you're to treat the enemy with kindness. This is exactly how he ends it. He says, beloved, never avenge yourself. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So two parts are contrasted here. On the one side, never get revenge. You don't fight back for revenge. You don't plot and scheme and get back. This is the vengeance cycle I'm speaking of. It is destroying entire, entire neighborhoods, streets, entire third world countries. This whole conversation about, oh, you did this for him to me. I'm going to do that to you. To the point where you killed my friend. Now I'm going to kill your friend. Yo, you killed my friend. Now I'm going to kill your brother. Oh, you killed my brother. I'm going to kill your mom. Oh, you killed my... And on and on and on and on and on. Street gang wars have gone. To where nobody knows when it began or why it began or what the point is. It's all about revenge. And vengeance is the fastest way to destroy a marriage. Vengeance is the fastest way to destroy a family. It's the fastest way to destroy a country. It is the fastest way to destroy a religion. You name it, you'll find vengeance there. It needs to be cut at the beginning. The way you cut it is by letting God be the one who bears the vengeance. Because God's going to deal with it in one of two ways. There's a day coming where all humanity will stand before God and we will be judged for the works that we have done, good or evil. And it is that day that all those things will be summed up. They won't be weighed against each other. There's no cosmic scales. We will simply be asked the question, why did we do what we did, just as any judge would? And we'll have to explain our motives and actions and we will be declared guilty for the sins that we've committed. Those sins that many people in our known lives want vengeance for. Isn't that true? There's people in the world that have you in your name and my name on their list for what they want revenge over. They're angry, frustrated. They may not even know it. They may have passed a long time ago. Well, we've harmed people and God will bring vengeance one day on the day of judgment. He will do it one of two ways. He will either judge us on that day and we will end up paying for it in hell or he can judge us today and place it on the cross. Those are the two routes. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want to have to say guilty to anybody. He will. There are plenty that he will say that about. But right now, you're here. He hasn't pressed the vengeance button. He hasn't brought about his justice yet. And so he's calling you to hear reason. That God has given you a way out. That if you will trust his gift, that Jesus Christ has borne your sins on the cross, you will trust that you're forgiven because Jesus has taken the vengeance for you and given you a way out to know God and walk with him, then you will not suffer hell. You'll be free right now because Jesus has borne your hell on your behalf as a gift from God. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You don't go and bunch of laws and pick it all back up. No, it's just given to you as a gift in which then you're made at peace with God and you can have a relationship with him. 
But for us as Christians who have already received that, then guys, how can we who have had a God who's given us so much and forgiven us so much hold to grudges and seek vengeance? We can't. We are called to be a people who release our grudges and let God be the one who judges. And I hope that all of us are convinced there's enough people in hell. No one else has to go there. Let's be the ones that forgive and give away the cross as much as possible so that they never have to face that. Amen, church? Amen. Let's do that then. Let's do this. Now, one last piece then. When we enter into this and we let this upgrade happen, what it makes us is agents of good. We become people who conquer evil. His very last verse in all chapter 12 is this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can fight fire with fire, but evil is not fire. Evil is evil. You cannot fight evil with evil. It only multiplies it and grows it. And there are big evils in this world, like war, like, like murder, and so, but there are, but don't, don't, don't excuse yourself. There are small evils in this world, like not listening to each other. Like the kind of fighting and the, and the mean evils we do to each other in our homes. The robbing each other, the devaluing each other. All this stuff exists. Everyone's guilty. We all have got big or little evils on our conscience. Evil is still evil and we don't fight it by committing more evil. We do one other thing. We overcome evil with good. Guys, here's my basic point. Your communities called your neighborhoods and your homes are filled with network problems. People who fight each other, people who argue with each other, people who can't listen to each other, people who are haughty and arrogant, who are know-it-alls, all of this stuff, insulting one another, doing all these things. But guys, the question that God has laid on our hearts is this, what are the goods we should do to impact and change this world? See, all this evil produces needs. And there are needs in every home, there are needs on every block, that if we would wake up and ask God to show us the needs of our neighbors, to show us the needs of our families, you become somebody who becomes a minister. And our ministries and new ministries should be existing to meet the needs of the people in our surrounding neighborhood. That's the point. Every ministry in our church ought to be meeting a need. The need of a single mom, the need of a single dad, the need of a family, the need of a marriage, the need of Women, the needs of men, the needs of poor, the needs of rich, the needs of the depressed, the needs of the drug addict. It is meeting needs by doing good that we impact this world and make a difference. We don't need to get caught up in the insults and the slights and the fights. The question is, what can we do that is so good that it moves this world forward one piece at a time? For the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. For our streets. That's the calling for our homes. And in the church. Let this gospel upgrade your life. Let it change the way that you think. Let it birth love in your heart. And a, and a, and a gift to serve. Because God wants to use us with this gospel. To impact this world. Let's do it. Let's ask God how he wants to do it in us and let's obey. Would you bow your heads with me? If you are here today and maybe you've heard what I've said about the fact that we need 
to be forgiven, that there's a day of judgment coming in which we'll find ourselves either, hey, facing God and finding ourselves guilty, or you can face him now and declare yourself guilty and receive his gift of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. He offers you this opportunity to be forgiven. He promises you that if you'll trust what he did on the cross, you'll be forgiven. And I believe once you've done that and you see that you're forgiven, there's no reason not to follow after God with all your heart after such a great gift. You don't want to go back and add up more sins. But he offers you himself to come into your life, to cleanse you and change you. Maybe that's where you're at today. You need to be forgiven of those things that you've done wrong and be released of the vengeance that God is bringing. And if that's you, right now, you can receive that gift. But just put your hand up. You say, yes, that's me. I want God to forgive me of my sins. That's me. I want God to be in my life and lead me. I'm ready to receive it. Now, you can talk to God all you right now, and here's how you do. You just begin by just letting him know that you know the sins you've committed. And so you do what's called confession. Just lay those out before him. may be a lot that comes to your mind. There may be a little, but when you're done with that, kind of list. Want in your mind's eye to do something. Imagine that you're turning away from those sins, turning to God. It's called repentance. And as you talk to God, ask him to put those sins upon Jesus. Let him know that you trust his promise that you've been forgiven of your sins. That you've been made new. And ask him to come into your life to lead you and walk with you through life's troubles all the way home to heaven. God, I ask that you'd aid them and bless those who have made this, who take this prayer and, and mean it seriously that they'd be forgiven. You should walk with them. Reveal yourself to them, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.